You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Okay, good afternoon and welcome to the Carnegie Endowment. I'm Marina Ottaway, a senior associate in the Middle East program here. And uh, I am very happy to be, uh, that we were able to bring you a group of very knowledgeable speakers about the situation in Libya. As we all know, Libya has very much been in the headlines uh, in the... Uh, last uh, few days, and not necessarily in a positive fashion. What emerges uh, uh, from the news reports coming out of Libya is a very confusing situation. On the other hand, a government that seems to have little control on its territory, little control on what's going on in the country, to the point where they could not prevent an attack on the uh, on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi. At the same time, a government that's extremely anxious to cooperate with the United States, extremely anxious to uh, sort of to behave the way a government should do in a situation of this sort, and in addition, an ex- very uh, uh, something we uh, we see something that we very rarely see that is crowds that take a position in favor of government control, that they are, they are trying to react against the militias and the problem of the militias. We are very lucky to have with us three people who have been in Libya very recently. I think the uh, uh, both... Uh, uh, both uh, Fred and uh, uh, and Fadil were there in July, and I think Peter just came out. If <laughs> I'm uh, August, yeah. in August, okay. I thought you had been there even more recently. Uh, they all have spent over the over the years a considerable amount of time in Libya, and they are extremely well acquainted with the situation. Uh, let me briefly introduce them, starting on my right with Fred, Fred Weary. Uh, Fred is uh, the latest addition to the Middle East program here. He's a senior associate in the program, and he specializes, on, uh, he specializes essentially on security issues, and he covers not only Libya, but also covers uh, the uh, uh, the Gulf countries. I think you should uh, look forward to a lot more work from him on the Gulf countries. Uh, to my extreme right is Peter Cole, who is a senior analyst in Libya for the International Crisis Group. He's the author of two recent reports, uh, divide, the, both of them for the ICG, Divided We Stand, Libya's uh, enduring conflicts and holding Libya together, security challenges after Gaddafi. Finally, to my left is uh, uh, Fadil Lamin. Uh, those of you who attend our meetings know that he has been a frequent speaker on uh, Libya. Here he is the president of the American Libyan Council. A uh, nonprofit organization dedicated to strengthening U.S.-Libyan relations, uh, and uh, he uh, is senior cultural advisor for the U.S. Department of Defense. And most importantly, for our purposes, is that he travels very frequently to Libya. So, without further ado, we are going to go in the order in which I have introduced people. We'll start with Fred, and then move on to Peter. Thank you very much. Um, I think it's important to, to analyze the, the awful events of, of September 11th this year, the attack on the consulate. 
uh, is really the symptom of a larger problem of misgovernance and instability and marginalization uh, in the eastern region of Libya uh, that is known as Cyrenaica or Barca in Arabic. It really comprises the, the three territories you see up there on the map, the eastern half uh, of the country. Uh, this is a conference on the periphery uh, of Libya. Uh, but in the eyes of Easterners, especially people in Benghazi, the east should not be the periphery. It should not be on the margins of, of governance. They see this region as really the engine of historical change uh, in the country, uh, that was really overturned by Gaddafi when he moved political resources and economic resource, resources west. After all, this is the region that's the seat of the Senussi dynasty. It's where Omar Mukhtar launched his campaign against the Italians. It's where Gaddafi himself launched his coup in 1969, drawing from eastern families. And, of course, it was the, the epicenter of the two, uh, 2011 revolt. And most recently now, it's been the epicenter of this revolt against the militias. Everyone in, in Libya knew that the militias were a problem, but it was the people in Benghazi who took matters into their own hands uh, and really forced the government's hand against these militias. And there's a saying in Benghazi when I was there that when Benghazi sneezes, the rest of Libya catches a cold. And I, and I think that really speaks to the, the grievances of this region, uh, and the militia problem is part of it. The oil factor is another issue. Roughly two-thirds of Libya's oil comes from this area. Uh, and what we see really is a, is a very fractured uh, security landscape. The power vacuum that we see throughout Libya was especially acute in the eastern part, especially in Benghazi. Uh, and we saw an escalating series of attacks, a worsening security situation, really since the, the uh, July 7th elections. Uh, rocket attacks, thwarted car bombs, assassinations of, of Qaddafi-era uh, officials, and militias running around in the open. And, of course, the culmination of this uh, was the, the attack on the consulate. Now, in my paper, I, I define uh, eastern instability or east, the eastern problems into really three uh, categories. Uh, the first is sort of the, the move toward autonomy or federalism, these, these grievances. Uh, in many cases, this is the dog that didn't bark. It, it's, a, it's a concern, but it's somewhat uh, faded from the scene after the, the July 7th elections. Uh, the second issue is Salafi militancy and, and rejectionism. And obviously, this is a huge concern, uh, and I'll talk about that. The third is uh, ethnic fighting down in the southern town of Kufra, which lies far to the south of the eastern coastal cities between ethnic uh, African Tebu and Arab the Arab Zway tribe. And this is a conflict that has really reverberated across uh, Libya, and it affects the, uh, uh, the eastern region. Let me, let me speak to this issue of, of autonomy and, and localism in this, in this region. Um, prior to the elections, there was a great deal of fear that this, this region would boycott the elections, uh, that it was pushing for autonomy. There was, in fact, an organization that was calling for autonomy, the Barca Council, uh, they instigated uh, the closure of roads. They shut down oil terminals. The bottom line of this story is that this movement really failed to attract a grassroots following, and many of their tactics backfired. And you saw a huge public backlash uh, against this movement that was really manifested in the elections. And I think we can say that the July 7th elections were an enormous success, and they were really a referendum our national unity. Uh, that's not to say that the issue of, of federalism or localism more broadly won't go away. And a key litmus test is going to be the constitutional process and the degree to which this constitution assigns uh, powers to, to local authorities and municipal uh, authorities. Um, 
The more worrisome problem is really the problem of, of Salafi militancy. And, and Salafism, militant Salafism, is not a problem that is exclusive to the eastern part. If you recall recently, there were a lot of uh, Salafi attacks against Sufi sites out in the west, in Tripoli. But this area seems to have a special resonance for uh, Salafism. Again, many of the roots of this movement are longstanding. They go back to the 50s and the 60s due to the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood from Egypt. Uh, the east was the scene of a horrific insurgency by the Islam, uh, Libyan Islamic fighting group uh, against the Qaddafi regime during the, the 1990s. The, the militancy that we're seeing right now uh, in, in Libya by groups like the Ansar al-Sharia that was implicated in the attack, I'm going to argue this is really a symptom of a, of a fracturing of the Salafi movement uh, in Libya. Um, after the revolution, what you saw is many of the former uh, Libyan Islamic fighting group luminaries, the Muqatalin, people like uh, Abdul Hakim Bilhaj, Sami Asadi, Abdul Wahab Al Ghaid, who was the brother of, of uh, Abu, uh, Abu Yahya Libya, uh, these were veterans of, of, the, of the struggle against Gaddafi. They entered politics, they ran as parliamentary uh, candidates, uh, they became politicized. There was a faction, however, that resisted integration um, and, and that has formed militias, that has uh, called for boycotting the elections, and that is really trying to make uh, its voice heard uh, in Libya. And as I've argued in some articles, this faction has really uh, failed to uh, get traction uh, or, or gain resonance in Libyan society. Um, they've been obviously making a lot of noise uh, about the about the elections in certain places like Derna and Benghazi, they've been trying to implement very draconian social mores. They've been playing the Arab-Israeli card, calling for support to Gaza. They've been sending volunteers to Syria. Most recently, we saw them attacking Sufi sites uh, across the country, and of course, they're playing the anti-U.S anti-Western card. And there's been attacks against Red Cross uh, facilities, a previous attack against the Benghazi consulate before the recent one. Um, all of these are, are symptoms, I'm going to argue, of, of, of a political movement that is not very mature and successful, that is, that is grasping or really flailing uh, for relevance in the society. And you can argue that the, the consulate attack was, was really a symptom of, of, uh, of this debate. The important thing I, I think uh, we need to remember about militant Salafism in Libya is that Libyan society has its own built-in antibodies to this movement. And we certainly saw that over the past weekend when, when the crowds in Benghazi took matters into their own hands and ransacked the, the, the headquarters of these Salafi militias. But this movement, this pushback by Libyan society against the Salafis began actually uh, much, much earlier. Uh, the, the first entree of, of this main Salafi militia, the Ansar al-Sharia, into Libyan political life occurred in June of this year when they, when they staged a rally in Benghazi and they were parading their, their technical vehicles with anti-aircraft weapons along Benghazi's main corniche and it was all videotaped and they were calling for Sharia. There was a huge counter-protest by women's groups, by NGOs, saying, you know, pack your bags, this country is not Afghanistan. Who are you to, to strong arm your way into our political life? And, and many of the strongest voices in this were, were women's groups. You found this even in a place like Derna, 
which has long been described as a hotbed of Islamist militancy, but in fact it has a thriving uh, NGO scene and civil society. Uh, and there's been numerous instances where people have pushed back there. An important counterweight in this society against Salafi militancy is the tribes. Uh, there's been numerous instances when I was doing my fieldwork in the East of the tribes getting together after one of these Salafi militias uh, overstepped their bounds and, and perhaps killed the member of a tribe. The tribes would get together uh, and in one case chase the Salafi militia out of Derna. They would forbid their tribal members from joining these Salafi uh, groups. And, and I think it's really important to, to recognize this sort of self-correcting mechanism that we find uh, that is unique to, to Libyan society, and I think it's a very positive sign, and, and we saw it really manifested this, this, past, uh, this past weekend. Um, the, the second you know, simmering conflict in the East is, is, the, is the conflict between the ethnic Arab and the Tebu down in Kufra. Uh, I'm going to let Peter talk about this because he covers the Tebu as part of the, the border problem, but this is a simmering uh, a conflict. It's really a, a vestige of, of Qaddafi's uh, divide and rule policy, uh, and it's and it's certainly affected uh, all of the East and really all, all of Libya. Let me let me conclude with with some thoughts about the uh, the security uh, the security sector and and why why this attack happened and where these militias came from and, and what the government's um, uh, doing about it. Um, what we saw, I think, over the past, I guess, year and a half was, was a real Faustian bargain by the, the provisional government in Libya, the NTC. It was bereft of its own police and national army. And so it really relied upon these, these militias, over 200 militias that were organized along uh, regional or town lines, uh, to keep order. It cut deals with them. Uh, it used them to project uh, its authority. Uh, and certainly there was this attempt to divide these militias into, into good militias, those that had nominally fallen under the Ministry of Defense or the Ministry of Interior, and then the so-called rogue militias that, that lay outside of it. But in practice, all of them were allowed to, to operate freely. They had their own headquarters. They had their own armories. They issued their own ID cards. They had their own payrolls. They kept people uh, employed. And they certainly had ready access to heavy weaponry that would allow them really to conduct an attack like the one on the consulate within, I think, an hour's notice. Uh, and they were out there uh, uh, operating. Some of them, I'm going to argue, genuinely performed a public service function. They, they functioned as sort of neighborhood watch uh, units. They, they controlled traffic. Others, however, ha became sort of these, these laws unto themselves. They were operating as mafia-like uh, organizations, getting into criminal uh, enterprises. And some of them, as we see in the East, had very Islamist orientations. Uh, and this was, this was really uh, 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 problematic. Um, the fundamental paradox that we, that we find now is that it's going to be difficult for the government to put the genie back in the bottle. With these, with these militias. The, the militias were really organized into these ad hoc bodies that were intended to enforce security during the transitional period. And I'm talking about these supreme security committees that were formed and, and attached to the Ministry of, Intent, uh, Ministry of Interior. And they really functioned like a national gendarmerie across the country. But what they were were simply militias 
by another name that were nominally assigned to the, the Ministry of Interior. By every account, these, these uh, Supreme Security Committees have been a disaster. They've been poorly trained. They've allowed the militias to pursue their own prerogatives. Um, there were reports of people that would join these Supreme Security Committees and it would be triple dipping. So they would get the payment from the committees, the police, and their own militias. And what we saw recently was a great deal of public outrage at these committees for not keeping order in the face of these attacks on Sufi shrines uh, in Tripoli, that they were standing by or even condoning these attacks. People were protesting. The GNC demanded that these, these, uh, the leaders of the Supreme Security Committees resign. What they did is went on strike and the GNC retracted its demand. So they have enormous uh, clout. There's another body known as the Libyan Shield that falls under the Ministry of Defense. And this is really another attempt to, to co-opt the militias into this, this force that is designed to quell a lot of the tribal fighting uh, throughout the country. And what this has ended up being is really sort of a shadow security state, a parallel to the army. Uh, and in many cases, the, the Libyan Shield has ended up inflaming the conflicts that it's meant to suppress or, or, or mitigate. Uh, and some of these shield forces uh, include radical Salafi militias. The Ansar al-Sharia militia was part of the Libyan shield force that was going down to Kufra uh, to fight. So clearly a priority uh, for the, the new government, uh, not only in the east, but, but in the south, is, is filling the security vacuum. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to Peter. Thanks, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just catch, nice catch that ball. Nice not to have to interrupt the speaker. <laughs> um, hi, um, I'm Peter. I've been in Libya for 12 or 13 months with the International Crisis Group. During the fighting phase of the revolution, I arrived in late July. Um, and uh, pretty much covering the entirety of the transitional, uh, the NTC era, the transitional government. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about one of the other huge policy issues in Libya today, which is the South, and with it, um, cross-border smuggling, and with it, security and governance. So much of the same issues Fred was talking about with regards to militias and security and governance, I'll be touching on as well. Um, the South, I mean, I'm going to start off with um, talking about it, just giving a few obvious things to say, and also why this is of interest to this audience in particular. It is a huge area. I mean, <coughs> Libya is an enormous country. The majority of the population is uh, based on the sea. It's a highly urbanized country. And then you have this enormous, and I mean really enormous hinterland. It's something like 4,500 um, kilometers of borders. It takes about 24 hours, probably a little bit more, just to drive across the coastal littoral. It takes a couple of days to drive across the equivalent in the south. Uh, it is an enormous place. And unlike, say, for example, um, parts of Egypt, for example, or other Sahelian countries. It's, it's actually thinly populated throughout, um, which is what people don't realize when they look at a map and they see these big spaces in between, uh, uh, in between towns. So the actual surveillance and security challenge is really, really quite huge. And the Libyans are starting from a very low base. Um, one of the things you'll probably know when you think about smuggling and the Sahel is what happened after the revolution, which was... Um, a, a, Nearly all of Libya's vast, uh, again I mean vast, weapons caches were opened up um, and ransacked by anyone. I mean, I, I saw, I was, I was in Tripoli watching them doing it. Um, 
And these arms have been traded and spread. Some of them have gone to create these militia groups Fred was talking about. Others have been traded. The most spectacularly in February 2012, Tuareg dissidents in Mali, Tuareg rebels in Mali were able to use weapons that they'd acquired from Libya to uh, um, arm an insurgency that took over the north of the country and has effectively succeeded the Malian military. It's not just Mali, though the Egyptian authorities regularly have problems with the interception of weapons coming through. Um, in Sudan, um, rebel groups in Darfur have been um, uh, proven and, and, and shown to have um, weapons with IDs, that, with, with Libyan, uh, Libyan serial numbers, Libyan IDs that they've acquired in the last year. Um, so it is very much a region-wide issue and possibly one of the biggest spreads of small arms throughout the area that we've seen in quite some time. Um, well, so that's, you know, and the other, of course, major issue, perhaps more for a European audience, but here as well, is uh, human trafficking. Uh, Libya is one of the main hubs, Morocco perhaps being the second one, the main transit points through. It's only about 600 kilometers to islands belonging to Italy, Lampedusa, for example, um, from Zwara and Tripoli there. Um, and there's Malta nearby as well. And Libya was, I think in 2008, there were nearly 40,000 uh, migrants coming from, it from Libya just to Italy. There was an enormous spike in, tra in people trafficking and with it drugs and other kind of security challenges that uh, the European Union had to deal with. Um, so Libya is very... So that, I mean, from a security policy perspective, those are the, the big issues. What I'm now going to try and do in the time I have is kind of take a bit of a step back and give you, like, talk a little bit about the history and the society of the South and explain why these issues are going to be very intractable to solve, why they've never been solved. There's been cross-border trade and uh, trafficking of people and, and weapons and, and goods and so for far longer than there has been a Libyan state. Uh, and the Gaddafi government did very... In some ways, it did a lot along the maritime borders, but in terms of the south, it, it did very little to actually do that. And with it, the social issues as well that you have to kind of get into to start to you know, give people incentives to do something other than do lots of uh, cross-border trafficking. So, okay, to give you a, to, uh, take a step back. The south is... Um, you, you need to think about... Um, a few major ethnic, ethnic groups in the south, tribal and ethnic groups. It's, um, in the southeast of the country, uh, you can see Aljelf there, you can see Kufra, the Kufra district, uh, and you can, all the way through to Mozuk onto the Nigerian border. Uh, there is a very large ethnic group called the Tebu, who are sub-Saharan. There's about something like 300,000 Tebu spread across Chad, Sudan, uh, Libya, and Niger. Um, there are something like 3% of the Libyan population, but there are in a significant majority when you come to these southern provinces. Um, that's the Tebu. Then you have further west, you've got um, the Tuareg, who, you, again, I mentioned them in the context of Mali. About 1.2 million Tuareg spread across Algeria, Niger, um, Mali, Mauritania, uh, and western Libya. They're slightly... I mean, you can see there's a few towns on, on, the, on the Algerian border where Tuareg are quite dominant. Um, you also have, uh, we talk about, the, Tuareg, the Tuareg are actually Berber and the Tebu are sub-Saharan Af African in sort of, I'm, I'm talking loosely here, but in ethnic origin. But you also have a lot of Arab uh, tribes and groups. The uh, um, Aulad Suleiman uh, are pastoralists as well. 
they're Arabs. They live in Niger. They live in Chad. Um, they and, and they and they uh, um, live in in Sapa in the south as well. You have the Magarha. You have the Warfalla, who are uh, one of Libya's largest sort of umbrellas of groups. Um, we always talk. Uh, oh, a pointer! Excellent, great. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to. Um, so it's not just a. I, I'm very keen to stress that it's not a smuggling, cross-border trafficking, and poverty. And these issues do not pertain to um, Libya's ethnic mi- minorities. They also pertain to Libya's Arab tribes as well. Um, so I want to talk now a little bit about, about um, the. Um, the smuggling economy itself. Um, in the south of Libya, you have um, few options available to you. Um, there is state um, uh, employment, which is very lowly paid. You can go and become a policeman or you can become an, ar- an army officer. Um, you can earn something like four, about $300 um, a year, no, sorry, a month doing that. Um, pastoralism is uh, one of the largest um, sources of employment. Um, the Tebu and the Tuareg and the Sleiman actually um, travel with herds of camels right down into Chad and Niger um, regularly. And the only other real option for you to make a living is trade. So smuggling isn't really like a, um, a kind of nefarious secret activity. It's actually quite open. If you are a merchant and you have to deal with um, cross-border, tra- you, you, you have to trade across borders, you are going to become involved in some kind of, you're, you're, you, are going to be, you are going to become involved in negotiating those borders, and you will inevitably have to do it in a quasi-legal way because of the way things work. It is a structurally endemic problem. What also makes it structurally endemic is, this, is um, the, society, the, um, the way the social networks of the region work. If, you're, if you are Tebu, um, or if you are Tuareg, your relationships, your marriage, everything about your life um, occurs within this social group that's spread out across this large area. Tebu and Tuareg don't actually marry within their um, family or within their particular community in the way that in the north a town like Zintan does, for example, or a ta- um, sort of a, an Arab town or, or might they will marry someone from Mali. They will marry someone from a particularly diff- a completely different clan. It is uh, socially the done thing to do that you pick someone to marry from very far away, and you pick someone to work to, uh, and the same goes for economic relationships as well. You are more likely to have closer relationships with somebody thousands of kilometers away than from somebody uh, the next town down the road or someone within, within your same town. Um, it is, that, that is the... That is the um, social landscape that you have. And what compounds that, what makes that even stronger, is the element of discrimination and marginalization um, of the Tebu and the Tuareg and the poorer Arab tribes. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit as well. Um, The the Tebu specifically, um, when Libya's first and only citizenship survey was carried out in 1954, sorry, census, sorry, uh, which led to the granting of citizenship, most Tebu were either too nomadic or, or illiterate to actually participate in that survey. Um, the same goes for Tuareg nationals as well. Most Tuareg and Tebu have 
ambiguous citizenship. Under Gaddafi, both the Tuareg and Tebu had their citizenship issues manipulated to serve political ends. In the case of the Tebu, uh, there was a long, decade-long series of wars with Chad in which Gaddafi tried to influence politically the shape and direction of the country. There's the, and also, at the same time, cement a claim over the Yuzu Strip. The Libyan government at that time encouraged Tebu to register in the Yuzu Strip to cement the claim, their claim over the borderlands. When Libya eventually lost their jurisdiction over the Yuzu Strip in 1994, with it, an enormous number of Tebu, I can't give you specific numbers because there simply hasn't been the kind of data or research on that to give it to you, lost their citizenship place and, and became de, uh, um, de-citizenshipized. <laughs> yeah. um, with the Tuareg, the Tuareg were drafted, like the Tebu, were drafted into the army from a very early stage and were offered, as in the 1990s and 2000s, as Gaddafi tried to, well, succeeded actually in influencing West African politics, his relationships with Tuareg deepened and deepened. Gaddafi wanted to set himself up as a mediator between Tuareg disciplines and, and, and uh, governments in Mali and Mauritania. And he did that by cementing relationships with Tuareg and recruiting them into the military. There's a number of battalions in the south, Nalbari, uh, what's called the so-called Black Battalion, which is down by Matana Sala, who are exceptionally uh, dominated by the Tuareg. And of course, that you saw the outcome of that last year during the revolution, when um, the sort of so-called mercenaries, which is a doubtful term, uh, turned out to be, uh, were, the Tuareg were alleged to be fighting for Gaddafi for money as, as, as so-called mercenaries. In fact, they were um, regular recruits into the army who were deployed in Benghazi. Actually, after that, uh, when we got into May and June and July, a lot of them simply left and went back. Um, so, uh, and again, I, I don't talk about them as much as I should, but when you're talking about the Arab tribes, they are equally marginalized and discriminated against. They're equally poor. In the case of the Awlad Sleiman and Warfala, they, were, they too were offered very sort of um, low-level jobs in the army and security services, and that was why they were such a bedrock of the state. Um, so I want, that's my little sort of social history. The two things you want to, two uh, points you want to take out from that. Firstly, the degree of marginalisation and discrimination of these communities, together with their social uh, apparatus, gives them pretty much no reasonable sort of option in life other than trade. And the secondly, and this is what I'm going to come on talk, uh, to talk about now, is that at the same time, those groups that do pick a state employment actually end up becoming part of the security services in the South. And that's why you have a recipe for disaster. You have the same groups, the same communities, at the same time engaging in, in cross-border trade, and also staffing the low levels of the, uh, the border communities, the police uh, and the army that are supposed to govern these borders as well. And that's why you have a very, very deep and entrenched problem. Um, the uh, way in which Gaddafi's Libya tried to monitor the, these borders was extremely fragmented, extremely weak, and extremely uh, quixotic. Um, and you'd be surprised. I've heard this time and time again when I, I mean, I've talked to smugglers in the South, and I've talked to military officers as well. The degree of reciprocity and the degree of... Um, symbiosis uh, that the military uh, def and defense uh, establishment had with smugglers. 
for example, um, Alwir, which is a small, which is a base. Um, I'll try and use this now. There we go. Right down there. Alwir. Is, also, is uh, the location of a larger military base since the time of the Chadian Wars. And it's also one of the major uh, entry points for human traffickers coming through Niger. There's three, human trafficking, there are three major routes. One comes from Sudan, um, largely Somali, um, sort of East African oriented. There's the Tibesti Mountains here, and there's one, there's a few wadis here they go through and they come up through Niger as well. Um, in all three cases, um, but particularly in Alwig and Matana Sarah, which is a military base, um, smugglers would actually ring the military, the, the military commander up. So they'd ring the commander of those bases and find out what the policy is. Gaddafi's policies at various points either favoured um, African immigration or when he was trying to placate the European powers, he would forbid it. So they would literally ring them up and ask. Um, more generally and more sort of mundanely, if you like, if you were, if you were simply a, a taboo uh, police officer or something who wanted to visit a relative in Chad or Niger, the legal way of going through those border points involved multi-day delays in the payment of huge sort of tariffs and bribes. So what do you do? It's, very, it's so easy to route around that you inevitably route around. And if you have a vaguely nominal citizenship papers anyway, you don't need to worry so much about visas and things like that. But of course, they wouldn't just route around without telling anybody. They would actually tell the, they would tell the border guard they're routing around. The actual informal routes, in many cases, were only a few kilometers down the road from where the border post was. Um, so that's why, I'm, when I'm talking about the symbiosis, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. And of course, the staff of those, um, uh, the low-level staff, were dominated by exactly the same communities that had a profit from uh, routing around, or had incentives, say, to route around the posts. Higher up, um, higher up the chain of authority in Gaddafi's Libya, you had, um, you had the government administration, but they weren't the ones with the real power. The people with the real power were the, were the mediators, the middlemen between Gaddafi's leader's office and local government. In Sabha, there was a guy called Colonel Ahmed Bisbah, and Colonel Ahmed Misbah would take a cut of uh, business profits, of any trade profits uh, going through the region. So there was a, a kind of obvious basic corruption element to it as well. So that meant two things. One, it meant that the interior ministry was effectively powerless to vis-a-vis -vis guys like Ahmed Misbah. And secondly, it meant that middlemen were essentially above the law, certainly above bureaucratic and government, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for, protocol. Uh, and able to profit from them. So that's the system that Libya has now inherited. And you've got the twin problem of a, 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 ge a geographically difficult and diverse terrain to survey, and socially, simply no tradition of ever doing so in a, in a consistent way. The, uh, even in the, um, much of these areas are military zones, but even Gaddafi's military was so fragmented. They all, I mean, by fragmented, I mean they had different communications channels, different radio frequencies. They didn't all answer to the same guy. There was an a thing called an interim defense committee, which Gaddafi sat on and controlled and purchased weapons. And that was how, he, that, that, that was how it, um, they would talk individually to different brigades. Brigades were run by people like his son or by you know, particular political insiders or people who have been with Gaddafi since uh, he was a young guy. The, ironically, Gaddafi's military did 
is not dissimilar to what you see now, a bunch of quasi-legal brigades operating in particular localities. So you have to not only simply provide, as sort of policymakers, the, the UN and the EU and various bilaterals do not only have to provide the, the obvious security solutions, you know, better uh, surveillance technology, that kind of thing. You have to deal ground up with reforming these institutions. And that's the really big challenge because you can't, you know, you can give the best sort of technolo- technological solutions in the world to an institution, but if that institution is inherently dysfunctional or inherently compromised, then you've got to work, you know, it's a very short-sighted policy. I'd argue, too, you also have to deal with um, social issues. The fact of the, the taboo, um, one of the, the, the taboo, by the way, joined the revolution very early on, and one of the things they, uh, the reason they did it was because of their hopes to regain their citizenship, which uh, Gaddafi uh, would requisition from them. Um, in 2007, he actually stripped a whole load of um, citizenship from many Tebu and Kufa, which sparked uh, um, some fighting, like some very severe fighting in the country. You have to deal with that as well. So I'm going to leave it there. It's been a whistle-stop survey, and I, ho- I hope I've made my sort of central points clear, but that's the, the essential argument of my paper. Okay, thank you, Peter. Now you pull it all together. Oh, that would be the tough thing. Pulling that country together is... <laughs> I don't think uh, it has been done since the Romans. <laughs> um, I think I'm just going to uh, highlight some of uh, what uh, Peter and, uh, and Fred were saying and see if we can come up with creative solutions because it's a problem. I just want to start by saying Gaddafi was not a leader in a sense like he was a statesman or was running a country. He was a conflict creator and a manager of conflict. That's what he used to do. That's, that's his job. If there is a conflict that we like to manage it, if there is no conflict that we like to, to, to create the conflict and manage it. Libya to Gaddafi was a tool and an instrument, was not a country uh, at all. That's why we don't see him have developed anything in the last 40 years. No institutions, no country. He was just using, because his goals has been all the time is to use this tool and instrument for a regional or global goals. That's, that's how he's projecting himself at the level of the, of the Arab world, of Africa, and in the global scene. That's why we see his, how he used the money, how he... And that's why we le- were left here with a mess <laughs> uh, that Peter and, and, and Fred were talking about. And I think if we look at it in that, co- in, in that, in, in, in that way, I think we will, we will have to say we are now faced by uh, rebuilding or creating a new country, in a sense, new institutions. Um, there is no... Um, there is nothing to really build on except the will of the people who want it to be uh, a society and want to be a united country uh, with some potential of success. And Libya also, because of what we've seen, the, the uh, peripheral and the, and the conflict within Libya, we've seen what happened with the, our ambassador here uh, 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 the last couple of weeks ago, uh, the last couple of weeks, and the conflict that were, was ensued uh, before that, there were some um, 
attacks and assassinations. Libya is, even though it wasn't in the global scene as a strategic country, it is becoming strategic because of the problem it can cause the region and globally. So I think the, there, is a, there has to be a shift in how we view this country uh, in, that, in that sense. Um, so this is something that we, we have to keep in mind. Um, of course, you know, border tribes, they always uh, do business. They don't call it smuggling. They call it uh, transportation business. And I think that's what it <laughs> is to them. That's how they work. Um, and unless they are grouped and, and pulled in within the society and they become part of a larger society and they have opportunity to change jobs and change careers, they will continue to do the same. And as Peter was saying, they intermarry from far other tribes, not because they, they, they are socially, you know, would like to improve the gene pool. They are more or less making business transaction, creating another point of contact in some other area so they can use it to do their, their business. So I think in that sense, we have to understand them in that. And both the, uh, the taboo and the, the, uh, the Tuareg, especially the Tuareg, they are living in a vast area. They are involved with, with everybody who was, used to be involved with them. They used to be trafficking goods. Now they're trafficking weapons and drugs. They got into interact. They start interacting with the, with the, uh, you know, with the uh, uh, Colombian cartels. We it's documented they're doing business with them. They are now doing business with the Zintan tribes and the uh, and the militias of Zintan. So the Zintanis are also becoming part of the uh, global enterprise of some sort. Um, so, can the government manage all this? No, I don't think it can. Uh, that's where Libya and these issues become a regional issue. And if you have end up being involved in trafficking of humans uh, to, uh, to Europe and other places, and Gaddafi was using that as a tool, uh, as you said, then what, will, what kind of solution that will be global solution regional solution, and then a local solution. And I think that, that's how we should look at the, um, the issue. Going back to Libya itself, the eastern part of the country, and uh, uh, an excellent paper by um, Fred, is uh, there are a couple of things. I think he got, he got, it, he got it right at, at every level, speaking about the, the, the militias and who were where and doing what. Uh, I just want to add a couple of things that we have somehow what I would call uh, that developed over time, the unholy alliance. You have Gaddafi managed the Salafists for a long time, and he brought them in. And over time, he has handlers for them within the security forces. He knows their ins and outs. He knows their weaknesses. He knows how to manipulate them. Gaddafi is gone, but the handlers and the leftover of the security forces are still there. They are infiltrating these Salafists. They manipulate them. Add to that the, uh, some of AQ, Al-Qaeda from uh, the European Peninsula, or the Al-Qaeda from the Maghreb, they are involved. So while the Salafists may be really misguided extremist people, 
there are the other two smarter you know, elements that playing them and using them. Tactically, I think the three of them agree on some tactical goals, and that's what brings them together. And strategically, they are different. You know, Al-Qaeda wants to another land to launch an attack against uh, the United States, a global war, it's a global war. So if there is a piece of uh, property, or land, or area where they can uh, do that, they will be very happy. Uh, they play on the whole uh, idea of uh, you know, Sharia and implementing Islam, and, and that works uh, well with the, with the Salafists. So they have something to agree on, at least for a short period of time. Uh, the Qaddafis, the, the uh, as former security apparatus, or the handlers, are very interested in a st- uh, lack of stability. The more the chaos in the country works well. All it, uh, the, the chaos works well for everybody. And the people in the militias, including the Sharia, if there is uh, problems and insecurity in the country, they will stay. If there is uh, a push toward security forces and army, that means there will be no militias. So it's not in their interest to push for that kind of institutionalization of security and, and military. Uh, so all of them, they work in that sense. That's why we see, we have seen some of the attacks were very well organized. Uh, the assassinations were very targeted. Uh, the, the attack on the, on the consulate was well planned, uh, even to the point that we don't want to admit here part of it because we don't want to give Al-Qaeda uh, a lot of credit which we shouldn't anyway, that they can use in their videos but, uh, and propaganda. But I think there is that, this alliance that's holding and taking place, and that's what makes them a little bit uh, uh, very dangerous in that sense. The, what happened uh, during the, uh, after the attack and the, um, the demonstration uh, by the Libyans in Benghazi where they rejected uh, the militias and they went and and took over some of their was very good. This is an opportunity for the government. But the problem that we have, people who are running the government in Libya who are very naive. They are reactionaries and reactive. They react to issues more than they... So they declare that there should be 48 hours and everybody should... Of course, they cannot enforce that uh, that ultimatum anyway. So it would be stupid to to issue an ultimatum that you cannot enforce because that will expose your weakness more and more. It's better not to issue an ultimatum than to issue one that you cannot fulfill. But at the same time, some of these issues, most of these issues in Libya, I believe that they are political and social issues that they have to be solved politically and socially. They cannot be uh, solved militarily. You cannot go to Bani Walid right now and invade it. You should have done that a long time ago. That's, but now, you have to invade it from within. You have to send, you have to use propaganda, you have to use other tools, you have to, uh, you know, invade it and work it from inside out, not from the outside in. Otherwise, you'll have a problem. That needs a, a certain level of sophistication at, that we Libyans don't have yet. And they need a lot of help at that level. But uh, the problem also with the Libyans, they are very hard-headed, that they think they know everything, that they don't need anybody's help. We can do it in our own. That kind of, of uh, the arrogance of, of ignorance is very, is very hard to deal with. 
And that's where I talk to a lot of people who try to help the Libyans, uh, be it in, in uh, the United States here or Europe or uh, even uh, United Nations. They are have facing a lot of resistance from the Libyans themselves that we have to do it. We have to do it ourselves. But you don't know how to do it. You are not equipped. You don't have the experience. Uh, and lastly, I just want to, uh, to point to what, uh, to what Fred said about the Salafists themselves are also divided. And what I would say that what happened to the Salafists is that go political or go extreme. You know, there is no, there is, some of them went political and they try to try their, their, their luck at the political uh, uh, arena by running and they did not uh, succeed. So that's a setback for them. Are they going to go back uh, and, and become extreme? or they will try again. Would the government sophisticated enough to have a seat for everybody at the table, create a round table that everybody should have a seat at the table, including the extremists, as long as they don't bring their weapons? So you have an issue of, of discussion within the country. If they don't sit at that table, they will go and sit at the Qaeda's table, or somebody else's table, or they create their own table, and you will have so many problems with that. The government has yet to have a multi-prone strategy in dealing with those groups. And I think that's where one of, uh, of the biggest problems are. And I think, I hope that we, we should here, uh, at, at the level of discussions and uh, the think tanks, they should try to provide some of the practicable, workable solutions that will help the Libyans. Because I don't think they can do it in their, in their own, even though they think they, they, they do. But they, they will get to a point to face uh, the reality and seek help, and help should be there when they need it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank to all, of the, all the three of you. Let me open up the discussion with first an observation and then uh, a question. Uh, the observation is very simple. Those of us who had uh, some... Uh, you know, formal training as political scientists, listening to, uh, to uh, uh, well, to all three of the speakers, but particularly to Fred and Peter, something that jumps up immediately is that if you, uh, of the components of the state, if you look at the classical definition of the states, two of the basic components of the state are missing in Libya. One is the monopoly of the, over the means of coercion, uh, which uh, Fred discussed uh, in, the, the, in Fadil. And the other is control on a fixed territory. Again, the story of the border. So that essentially what we are dealing with it's a state that is very much of a shell. In a sense, Fadil went one step beyond when he talked about the lack of institutions, which is certainly true, but I think the problem starts earlier. It's not only the institution, it's the state itself that's very much, uh, uh, that very much at, uh, uh, you know, at stake here. And the question that I want to pose, and really I want to pose it specifically to Fadil, but also to everybody else. And the reason why I start with him, that my question is really, it's based on a previous conversation we have had, I think, at some meeting here, where he was arguing, if I am correct, that perhaps the best way to bring the militias under control or to establish some order is to do it locally rather than to do it nationally. That there is perhaps more... 
uh, uh, more possibility essentially at that level where the, than to try to get this militia to surrender to a central government. And in a sense, I think something that Fred said that ties into that when he talked about the fact that, that in these various towns, essentially, NGOs, local groups, the tribes, the women sometimes, come and protest against the, the militias. Again, that would indicate very localized reaction to what is happening. And I'd like all of you to, uh, to comment on this. Very quickly, I think you, you're absolutely right. And I still believe that the, the local starts from the local because you have a hollow or shell of, of, of the central government, if we can call it central government. There is, no, there is a complete con disconnection between the local and the center. And there is so much activities and so much uh, things can be done at the local level that will reflect uh, and, and improve the, uh, the, the situation on the national level if the center was able to benefit and use it and coordinate some of these efforts, but it's not being done. And that's why we have a lot of problems, because some of these militias are either regional or local militias. Some of the problems are still local or regional problems. They are not, it's not an all-around civil, all civil war, uh, national civil war. I think it's more still. But if the government does not work with the local level, be it the, the local councils, the elected local councils, and, and the uh, civil society, and the tribes, and everything, I think we will may end up with, with, a, uh, with, a, with a wider conflict in Libya. I, I completely agree. I think <clears throat> Libyans just have a real sensitivity to the, the hyper-centralization that defined the Qaddafi area. And, and so I think you know, recalibrating this balance between local and, and central government is key. And how that plays out in the military sphere is is critical. And, and I mean, many of these militias are, are sort of creating facts on the ground. They're, they've created their own coalitions in the West, in Misrata, in the East. So, so these, these sort of regional armies are already there. And meanwhile, the national army remains a hollow force. It's top-heavy. It's filled with, with these colonels and generals. It's tainted by its association with the, with the Qaddafi regime. So for, for the moving forward with the creation of the, of the national army, there has to be some sort of meeting between these two Two forces. The, the national army cannot take on these regional groups. There has to be, um, as as Fadil mentioned, some sort of backroom negotiations uh, that that are ultimately political. And this is ultimately about winning the confidence of these regions, these towns, in the central government, and convincing them uh, to meet the government halfway in terms of of integrating uh, their forces. So we're we're sort of talking perhaps like a, a national guard, like. Uh, force the way our the national guard is constituted um, uh, in this country, and in, in some sense, these Libyan shield uh, forces are, are already um, like that. In fact, I met a, a senior commander in Misrata who was who was proposing a, a system where the shield forces would sort of function like a a reserve military force. But what it sounded like to me was a was a sort of thinly guised attempt to to keep his militia in waiting to have his armory ready. And, and so if he didn't like the way the central government was going, he, would, he could call on this, uh, this, this militia. Um, 
you know, so the, the government has to tread, I think, um, uh, very carefully on this. We're already seeing in the East um, some, some attempt to do what, what Fadl mentioned in terms of the, the government appointing army officers over, the, over two of these, these Islamist brigades um, that were attacked by the, by the crowds, the uh, February 17th Brigade and the Rafala Sahati Brigade. Uh, they're now under the nominal supervision of, of these national army officers, what that actually means in practice remains to be seen, but it, it just suggests that the government is aware that it doesn't have the authority, doesn't have the firepower to take on these militias um, head on. So, thank you. You tell yeah. you want to add something? Yeah, um, I mean, from the very beginning, um, most um, militia groups, armed groups, brigades, however you want to defend the non-state groups, have demonstrated and expressed a continual appetite to be part of the building of the new Libyan state. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Um, there's no, they have, these, these groups have no legitimacy, no narrative in the way that, say, a militia group like Hezbollah or Hamas has a narrative. They, have, they, they use the, the legend of resistance, Mokama, to, to justify their independence from the state. Libyan militias don't have that. Even in the case of federal militias who support federalism in Benghazi, they don't have that. They only claim to represent, at best, a community. And that's the great balance. Long term, that's the great balance of power in favor of the Libyan state in terms of eventually being able to absorb this. When they've been already trying to roll out programs to... to, uh, get militia members into the Ministry of the Interior and Defence, and to the, the good news is there has been take-up and there has been interest in it. The big question is, what are you, as you said, what are you talking about when you talk about the Libyan state? Um, the, are we talking about um, militia groups joining the remnants of Gaddafi's military? That's the great fear, in, especially in the East. Mm-hmm. Hugely, in, but, actually, but actually also in the West as well, when communities like Beni Walid or Rechlen or particular communities would dominate the military apparatus and so, I don't say subjugate their neighbours, but certainly mess around with their neighbours a bit. Um, that's the, that is the issue. Like For me, the, the danger right now is that the army is now doing, post-September the 11th, what um, the SSC, the Interior Ministry, did. Uh, nine or 12 months ago, which is pretty much wholesale enroll a brigade and say, right, you are now functioning on our behalf. Great, but the the, the militia group still has uh, autonomy over weapons, autonomy over recruitment, the ability to mess around with funds, to double dip, um, huge amounts of independence, and that's what's been going on. It seems to me the army's now going down that route with, because all they've simply done, I I spoke to the um, the brother of the commander of... uh, Fellow Sahati on 17th of February this, this morning, actually. All they've simply done is put one guy, uh, uh, assigned one National Army colonel to that brigade. Okay, he's a good guy, they accept him, that's good news. Okay, this is all positive stuff. But the militia group's still there, and it's still operating under Ismail Salabi's authority. So that, to me, is the danger. What I think the army has to do, and what I argued in the most recent ICG report, is that the army does actually have to reform itself as well. Um, that's a huge undertaking. It, as Fred said, it's a top-heavy institution. Uh, it's full of colonels and generals. Uh, most recruits wouldn't go into the army. They'd go into Hamis Gaddafi's brigade because it pay, you could earn more driving a truck in Hamis Gaddafi's brigade than you could being a, you know, a, a general or a senior officer in um, 
uh, in the national army. Gaddafi squashed the army. So they have to begin again. Uh, it's going to be a multi-year job. I, I, I think you know the best thing is to start with a single corps, a single uh, battalion, say, and grow within that. Give that battalion a new core identity, a post-revolutionary identity. Um, st- uh, appoint officers who are friendly to both the militias and to the uh, the army. They exist. Another good thing. Start that way. Grow. Start small. Create a sort of egg and grow out from that. Thank you. Okay, let's open it up. Uh, please wait for the microphone and identify yourself when you uh, when you speak. I see one over there. And one over here. Yes. Oh uh, yes, in Sapha, Johns Hopkins Ice. Uh, thank you very much for organizing this really insightful panel. I would like to ask a question to Father Laman. Uh, I remember you giving a speech about two months ago uh, in the after, at the Atlantic Council in the after, aftermath of the elections. Uh, do you, what, how do you see uh, the role that is playing Qaddafi Dam? That I haven't really heard you mentioning that in actually uh, threatening the security situation in Libya. And also, uh, Abu Shagur came uh, to Washington, D.C. about two months ago as well in a mission to promote Libya in the U.S. Do you think it's going to be up to the challenge to bridge the gap between security uh, situation now and like, uh, tightening the relations with the U.S.? Well, um, I'm let, me t- let me take another one here, and then you can both... You can reply to all of them. I am Mr. Lloyd from the University of Maryland. Um, since the time that um, Gaddafi was gone, until the events a few weeks ago, had we invested in soft culture, say like um, movies or music or business and NGOs, and especially getting into the local level, because you made mention that the uh, social culture is really very poor. They have no um, opportunities whatsoever except for trade and getting into smuggling and this drug stuff. Had we invested in all of this since the time Gaddafi left, uh, could we have prevented the events that happened with the attack of our embassy? Okay. Let's open it up. Since the first one, yeah. he was looking at you, so you start. <laughs> um, very quickly, I mean, he's talking about Gaddafi Dam. He is uh, Gaddafi's cousin, was in Tripoli, and, and he fled to Egypt. He has a lot of money. He has a lot of influence. He moves, and he is a troublemaker in, in, in Libya. Uh, there is no doubt about it. There is a couple of incidents when they try to smuggle some uh, forces. Uh, to blow up some uh, of the oil installation in the south. Um, but it was taken care of by some of the allies, and that was, that was good. So, but ultimately, they have to be brought to, uh, to a table. It may not be the table that I was talking about with the militia, but I think it would be another table at another level. Uh, Jalil tried with a, an initiative of some sort, but he did not clear it with the rest of the Libyans, and he did not prepare the, the ground for it, and it backfired. But ultimately, they have to they have to reach out. That's part of the reconciliation and transition of justice. As far as Abu Shagur, I think he's, uh, he's, he's the best that among the, the people that uh, stepped out to be the uh, 
the uh, prime ministers, and I think he has he has some capabilities. He learned from his mistakes, from the government's mistakes, and hopefully he will uh, he will uh, do better. But definitely, I think as far as political savvy and the ability to, he needs a lot of help. That's all I can say. With regard to the the outreach, I mean these these efforts, at least by the U.S., were were ongoing while Gaddafi was in power. I mean we were we had a public diplomacy program. We were sending students on Fulbrights. We were trying, you know, even in those dark times, to reach out to the to the Libyan populace. And I think since the revolution, this has only increased, uh, especially in places like the East, and especially around the time of the elections. I mean, I was there, and there was just enormous. Outreach from from Western NGOs uh, to the Libyan populace um, across the spectrum, and, and there was tremendous receptiveness to that. Now, would that have prevented the attack? No, because because these these radical Salafi militias were sort of these these autonomous islands that were were vehemently opposed to interaction with the West. I mean, we saw them attacking these these Western icons. Um, you know they were they were railing against uh, the U.S. presence in the country, and in a lot of their social media, they were talking about the U.S. using Libya as a base to fly drones and using it as a launching pad for counterterrorism. So they were just these these wellsprings of anti-Americanism. The, the best the best outreach that was going on to these radical Salafi groups like the Ansar al-Sharia was through through fellow Islamists who had who had made the journey toward a more pragmatic political stance, and and some of these. People in Al Watan, some of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Grand Mufti of, of Libya, so so because they could talk in the same vocabulary, and so they said, "Look, you know, you're entitled to have these hardline views on Sharia, even on anti-Americanism, but you cannot do it through force of arms." So these this outreach was ongoing um, as well, and so my point in my presentation was, I think, some humbleness about what the U.S. can accomplish in this country, and some respect for the Libyans' ability to to regulate their own society and, and police themselves. So. I would echo that point. Um, I think um, outreach, soft power stuff, um, trading, that, um, that kind of thing, has largely bypassed um, the militias or the, the, the armed groups. It's been extremely evident elsewhere in Libyan society, particularly in the urban areas. It's bypassed the armed groups. There are some exceptions. I mean, there's this thing called the Warriors Affairs um, Committee that... Um, Offers training to brigade leaders. It, they, they've select, I attended one uh, training someone seminar where they got um, a UAE member of the Defence Ministry from the, EU, the UAE to come over, and uh, they had this really interesting discussion. There was uh, it was fifty percent weird management leadership games where you got to sort of you you got to join the dots using the least amount of lines and that kind of thing, and a fifty percent Quranic discussion about constitution and elections and what was going on and what uh, and reference to the, the hadith and and, uh, and everything. Um, I, I mean, regardless of that particular example, it's there. It's re- there's simply no profound outreach or training being offered to militia groups. I th- one of the reasons may be because certainly go- governments can't. I, I don't think governments can do that. I think they they have to go through the the army, the Ministry of Defence and Interior, which has their own agenda for or their own reasons for not giving. You know, not 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 reaching out directly to these uh, these youth. They tend to keep the training and that kind of thing uh, inside. Um, I, I have no reasons but to no ready answers as to how to get around that, but it is a problem. More broadly, however, I mean, it's not simply that there's a lot of help being offered to Libyans. Actually, there's an ama- amazing amount of initiative 
Um, again, I have to say it's mostly Tripoli and Benghazi that, where you see it most evidently. But I'm talking about, for example, people, uh, youth, 20 to 30-year-olds, getting together and training themselves as election monitors, busting themselves up to Tunis and into Egypt to, to observe the elections, uh, working with uh, NGOs from you know, Germany and various, uh, Egypt and various other areas to actually kind of develop this awareness of what's going on. I mean, really cool, seriously cool stuff. Again, though, that's in the civilian space. It's not hitting the, um, the, the, the youth and the militias who are largely unemployed you know, young guys who do need a, you know, something to do with their lives, who do need a serious amount of training. And again, I've got to say the South um, has been largely neglected in that. I mean, partly that's, a, again, a security thing. I mean, Kufra is in a state of frozen conflict. Um, There's the way the Arab tribes are building a war uh, now to block off, block themselves off from the taboo areas and things like that. Uh, I don't think any NGO would sustain, you know, have the security or insurance to sustain the presence there. Um, Sabha, again, a state of frozen conflict, very, very minimal kind of presence there by NGOs. That's the great. I just want the to say that uh, this wall you're talking about was imported by one of the. Uh, of the NGOs from the United States idea. It's like building Wait, a wall. Right? <laughs> really? No, I'm just... <laughs> oh, okay. If I can just add quickly a, a more general point concerning, you know, the use of soft power, if I can, the outreach, the cultural outreach and so on. I think the evidence, if you look at public opinion polls around the Arab world, for example, what you see is that there is a real discrepancy between the attitude that people have towards... United States as a country, as a culture, as a people, and the attitudes against uh, uh, about U.S. policy. So that the, the, there is really no clear indication that the that outreach, uh, sort of soft outreach programs, really by an understanding or an acceptance of U.S. policy. That, they seem to travel in different directions. The uh, uh, and the opinion polls are. Uh, the, everywhere in the Arab world and elsewhere in the world too for that matter really show these totally different uh, attitudes on the cultural level and on the political level. Let's get uh, get some more questions. There is a gentleman. Okay, one, two and three back there. Michael Bracky from EIA at the Department of Energy. Thanks for the discussion. I'd just be curious in your perspectives about how likely it is that the underlying tensions you described are likely to affect oil production in the near term, whether that's through outright disruptions to production or refining or, or exports or by delaying or deterring much-needed foreign investment. Thank you. Okay. Uh, yes, the gentleman with the blue shirt. The... Sorry about that. I didn't see the guy in the back, or the woman. Right. Q with uh, Stimson. I guess my question is a little bit more directed to Mr. Frederick, kind of drawing on your knowledge of like Gulf states and seeing similar dynamics in Yemen with regard to competing militias, lack of a central um, government control, and um, to a degree a call for regional autonomy. What type of lessons do you think we're learning from these two states? And also specifically with these type of dynamics in both states, what and how can the U.S. be supportive in their transitions? Okay, let's take a third one. And the person in the back that I could not see that I so rudely interrupted. 
Hi, my name is Robert Morrow. I'm from the American Libyan Chamber of Commerce and Industry, principal advisor. Uh, we've seen a number of, of uh, American companies who are chomping at the bit to look at the opportunities in Libya um, in, in a variety of different sectors, all of which need to be uh, brought up to date. Um, given the fact that you've both, or several of you have been there recently, have spent some time there recently, um, you know, from or the perspective that we've had in, in, in the North, it seems that security is not that big a consideration, but we want to get your perspective of having been there recently as a Westerner. Have you felt any, any difficulties? Have you felt any, any threats to your person? Would it be um, advisable for American companies to wait for the time being, or is it, is it a good opportunity to, to start looking at the opportunities now? Okay, let me start. Since you were the last one out, I'll start with you this time, so that we don't. Um, on, I'll, I'll deal with the commercial question first. Um, I mean, I was there for on the commercial side. I, I was there for thirteen months. I, I, don't, I don't have a security detail. Um, I, um, I have a fairly low profile. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just me. Uh, but I, I have good relationships with you know militia commanders, government officials, and so forth. So if something does go wrong, there's three or four people I can call at any moment. I, I certainly think that I mean I don't want to give you a recommendation that you know you, you then act on and then something happens and something goes bad. But um, I think it's totally possible as as in a security environment you're, you're not looking at. It's certainly not at the level of say Iraq or Afghanistan in terms of threats. Um, to, uh, to Western companies. There are some sensitivities you have to observe. For example, the use of um, uh, foreign contractors to provide security, uh, basic foreigners with, 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 with guns or that kind of thing, is, is frowned upon. And in fact, the NTC actually issued a de- decree banning it. Now, an NTC degree do- doesn't mean it's law, um, but it's that kind of ambiguous quasar transitional legal. Uh, so, it's for, for, so for the moment, you have to go with Libyan security contractors. Um, um, what else can I say? Um, I think that for companies investing in Libya now, relationship development is a huge priority. Um, the startup costs that a, a foreign business has to bear in Libya are, are quite significant, really immense. And the restrictions or the, the legal environment is, again, inherited from Gaddafi. So you have to partner with a Libyan business. You can only own so much amounts of stock and that kind of thing. Now, that will change, but the government has bigger fish to fry now than reforming its commercial law. So I, I, don't, I don't expect much change in the next year to 18 months. I expect... Um, a lot of turnover in the ministries, a lot of turnover in you know, the Libyan Investment Authority and people, places like that. Um, but still, now is probably the time to go and actually start creating relationships that sustain you well in the long term. Absolutely. With regard to the question on, on the oil, I mean, this, this is a real concern in the East. And, and what we saw just prior to the uh, July 7th election was a, was a pro-autonomy armed group uh, shut down the, the oil production facility at uh, Rastlanouf and, and Brega. And certainly this issue of oil as, as a leverage by groups in the East, I think, could, could emerge. I'm not a, a specialist on oil the technical details, but it's 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 a definitely a concern with people I spoke with there. Uh, there's another dimension that that also stems with the conflict in Kufra down in the south. The the Zawai Arab tribe is a party to that conflict. They're there in Kufra, but the uh, the Zawai tribal belt extends all the way up uh, through Ajdabi, and that whole area there's there's quite a lot of um, oil fields there, and and. By one estimate, I saw that the Zawai sit on a top, about 11% of, of, um, of Libya's oil. They work as, as guards. 
they've threatened, I don't know if they could make good on this threat, but they've threatened to shut down production if the, the government did not help them and intervene in their fighting in Kufra. So it just demonstrates that these, these peripheral conflicts, whether we're talking about Kufra or we're talking about the Eastern, the Eastern issue, they, they affect the whole of Libya because of this, this, uh, this oil issue. The issue of Yemen, I'm, I'm struggling with, with parallels there. I mean, on the surface, perhaps there are some, but, but I really think the fundamental issue in Yemen is you have a, a state, a, a sitting government that has, has really squandered its legitimacy and, and the, the institutions are the, are the problem uh, with governance, whereas in Libya you're starting from scratch. There, there are no institutions. The, the tribal system, I mean, tribes are a very slippery slope, and I don't think we have time to get into the ethnographic distinctions between Yemeni and, and Libyan society, but I would just argue that I don't think they're as, as stark in, in Libya as they are in, in, in Yemen, that it has not been solidified and formalized to the degree that it is in, in Yemen. Um, the same thing with the societal divisions. You don't have in, in Libya, the equivalent of the Zaidis in the, in the north, the Houthis. You don't have this... The, the, the eastern issue that I mentioned here has not evolved into a full-fledged secession effort like you see uh, among, in Yemen. And, and lastly, Al-Qaeda has not achieved this, a similar foothold uh, that we see in, in Yemen. I mean, there's, this, there's the, the, the murmurs of al-Qaeda in, in Libya, and there's, there's been chatter, there's been interest from al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. There are these, these Salafi jihadist groups in Benghazi and Darna in the east that ideologically, on the face of it, appear to be affiliated, but the, the actual operational linkages, I think, are, are still uh, nascent. So, so you don't have an entire region of ungovernance that has fallen to al-Qaeda like you do in, in Yemen. And so. yeah. Very quickly on the oil uh, thing, I think it's uh, the fact is that the only institution that was working for the last 42 years was the uh, oil uh, sector. Gaddafi kept it uh, away, kept it under control, run it as a business, uh, and I think it, it's, it continues to function that way. There is some problem with, with having a ministry of oil and the national uh, oil uh, company, which is the the or institution that runs that business, so there is some conflict and a little bit of fight over control. Um, I was having a dinner with uh, Abu Shagur the day that uh, uh, Ras Lanouf was taken over by uh, the guys from the east, and uh, and the conference, the uh, the phone call came, and the guy, the head of this group, was talking to Abu Shagur and threatened. And I said to Abu Shagur, you know, tell him that there is a red line. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and, and he was, Abu Shagur impressed me because at that level he became very forceful and he said these are essentially sensitive uh, institutions and you or anybody else would never be allowed to, to, uh, to threaten this institution. And if I have to call on air power, I will. I mean, uh, so he made the statement, and we have not seen uh, a repetition of that uh, level. So um, I think when it comes to, uh, to oil, if it's threatened, I think the Libyans in general uh, will, will, will be unanimously in protecting that uh, institution. What about the situation for American companies? Uh, the situation for American companies, I think it's... Uh, uh, the, there is issue of criminal uh, uh, elements, the kidnapping, and 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 there are some and, and ransom and all this kind of stuff. But goes for Libyans 
as for American, it depends on how the value of the person and how much they can get out of it. <laughs> Maybe sometimes no offense, Jake. I should declare my business interests stage. Yeah, um, I think you should have to drive drive another car. <laughs> but I think it's. Uh, I think I would I would suggest that uh, people have to wait a couple of more, a few more weeks until things settle down and and the, uh, the even the country. I mean, there is still. A, uh, a warning for traveling to Libya it still stands. Um, some of the NGOs are going back uh, next week. I am going back, um, going uh, on Saturday. Uh, my deputy, who will be working with me, she's uh, uh, an American lawyer, and we will uh, we'll ease her into Tripoli uh, in the next few weeks, hopefully. And I think uh, we just have to be very careful. But I think, and overall, uh, in the major city, there is no problem. But if you travel outside Tripoli or Benghazi, especially if you travel the south, uh, it's better to travel uh, air travel, not uh, to travel uh, by car. And there are some security things that people have to keep in mind. But overall, I think uh, people are very anxious to have the... I think one of the, one of the biggest things that made the Libyans angry is the incident that had, took place in Benghazi is going to drive... Uh, uh, companies and, and investments and business away, and and they were very unhappy with that. They've been working very hard, the revolution and everything, to to be as reassociate Libya with uh, with the rest of the world, and and that they felt that would can be a big setback. So uh, we'll keep that in mind. Thank you. Let's have another round of question. I think you had your hand up earlier. Uh, we have one here. Right here. Uh, Doug DeGroat, uh, Executive Intelligence Review. Uh, the events in the, uh, uh, over the weekend of the, uh, after the uh, death of the ambassador, where he had these uh, demonstrations against the militias, one of the results uh, was that some of the militia leaders said all the weapons had been stolen by the demonstrators. So these thing, things seem to be getting recycled around somehow and out of control again. With the ambassador gone and with the CIA team uh, out, one of their big things was looking for all these man pads and so on. Uh, how do you assess the impact of that situation as a, uh, reducing the ability of the government to control the peripheral problems you're talking about? Okay, there was one back. Yeah, that we have two. Hi, uh, Matt Van Etten with the uh, Conflict and Stabilization Operations Bureau at the State Department. I have a question for, for Fred and, and for others, but Fred, because you mentioned it in your report, uh, you talked about some of the efforts to work with uh, DDR type of programs for those who have been in the revolution, and you mentioned the Warriors Affairs Council, and that sounded like it was a promising start as an avenue, a channel for people to engage their, uh, their efforts as a way to, um, to kind of show those who had not been militants, you know, for very long before fighting started, another way to get back into life and to kind of deal with reconciliation on other fronts. Um, do you see this being kind of lost in the shuffle as we have new ministers uh, being brought into government? Because it seems like there's been some talk of that, but it once again had been a very promising channel and one that was springing up from a Libyan sense to get back towards a regularization and normalization into the international community. Thank you. The, uh, over here. Thank you. 
No, let, let's go over here. I had told him. Oh, the gentleman right here. I'm right here. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Thank you. Benjamin Wang, Cornell University. My question is actually related to the first two um, about the concern of weapons and weapons proliferation. But I guess I want to broaden it more generally and return to a similar theme that the panelists brought up about the distance between uh, the periphery and the metropole or local, regional, and the national government. And if a concern such as weapons being taken uh, can might be one avenue to sort of be a common cause that might allow for a uh, connection between top, bottom, uh, center, uh, or left. So thank you. Okay. Let's, uh, who wants to, uh, Fred, you start. Let me tackle the, the issue of the Warriors Affairs Commission. And, and much of my information stems from, from my interviews with, with the WAC, WAC people in, in July. I mean, I, I agree it was a promising program. Um, it, it was hobbled at that time by uh, lack of buy-in from, from other ministries. It was seen as a, a sort of unilateral program by the prime minister's office. And you had, you had resistance from the Ministry of Labor, Ministry of Interior, the Ministry of Defense, but to my knowledge, they did make a lot of progress with, with first of all, just establishing a database of, of these uh, revolutionaries, and uh, I think Peter and I both, both saw the actual registration forms, and, and they were very thorough about uh, gathering information about these, these young revolutionaries, their, um, to include their, their hometown, where they went to school, and really vetting. So you had a number of, of tiers. I mean, there was obviously a huge wave of people that signed up, uh, and then there was, you know, they, they vetted people, and from that number, there were some that were selected. So they were, they were clearly doing their homework, because the concern, obviously, is there are a lot of opportunists that are going to come in. I mean, people that didn't really fight in the revolution or weren't really part of these militias. Um, the problem was lack of funding, I think, uh, and I think lack of, of buy-in from certain militias. And, and I think especially uh, in Misrata, which has always had this sort of go-it-alone approach and, and been very well organized with their own militias and been distrustful of the center, they don't want to surrender. They don't want to give the central government a list of all their young men who fought in the war to, with all this very personal data, because what that smacks of is, is a Qaddafi-era program to control the center controlling the, the periphery again. You know, it's just it's classic centralization. You're surrendering all this, you know, and then and then the obviously the issue of of manpower. Uh, I talked to one uh, brigade commander in, in Tripoli who was is sort of on the margins of the MOD. This he was involved with uh, with uh, guarding the border, and, and obviously he was making a lot of money from this, and, and he had his own sort of little personal empire. And he said, "This the whack is an academic exercise." He used that those terms. And and if I'm kind of a guy who's who's building a fiefdom uh, as a sort of semi warlord to, to suddenly volunteer to surrender this, so. The WAC was aware of this, and their solution was, look, we're, we're going to go directly to these young men, and here, here is where outreach needs to happen. You tell these young men, your future doesn't lie with your militia commander. It, it lies with the state. And yes, you serve this, this noble aim, fighting uh, the revolution, but, but that's over. You need to join the legitimate army, the legitimate police. You need to, uh, here's a scholarship, go study abroad. Here's training for a vocation. And that was the theory behind the WAC, and I, and I agree with it. I think it was a great program and, and they were the, he, the head of the WAC specifically said we're going straight to the to the young men we're circumventing the militia commanders we're circumventing the uh, the regional military councils because there's this 
they weren't buying into it. Um, now, I just don't, maybe Peter can jump in, but I don't know uh, if, if real life has been breathed into that program. And it, it really came down to funding and then the, the sort of legitimacy problem of the NTC. So. Should I add on a whack? Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, I agree with pretty much everything Fred's just said. I mean, WAC was, um, uh, it was drowned in applications from the beginning. It was set up in January, I think. I think it had 250,000 at one point. And I think the militia commander was saying, if we had 250,000 people fighting for us, this thing would have been over in weeks. Um, and, but on the, you know, there's a way of looking at that negatively. But hey, on the positive side, how great that the unemployed kids are submitting these forms in the hope of, okay, for maybe for venal reasons, but in the hope of getting you know, jobs and employment from the state. That's a good thing. That's something that should be encouraged. Um, I think that the, the <coughs> WAC was set up in January and it had this big headline, $8 billion of funding. It never got that. And they, it, in fact, they were drip-fed funding. And so, they, again, there was a largely administrative exercise to build a database from which the Ministry of the Interior and Defence would then... People would be funneled into employment, into labour, Ministry of Defence. And it never... It still hasn't achieved that. The Ministry of the Interior and Defence have done their own thing, which is... We both talked about the problems that that engendered with them just registering brigades wholesale. Um, and the labour stuff hasn't really got started yet because no infrastructure projects have got started yet. Um, so it's still, uh, an, again, uh, you said an academic exercise, right? It's still in that stage. I don't think it should be written off. I think it is continuing. Sigisley still has his, Mustafa Sigisley is um, part of the work. He still has his post. And there's also, like, I would describe the, militia, the, the main militia coalition's view of the WAC as sort of cynical cooperation. Um, I mean, Sigisley's deputy in Benghazi has an office in the gathering of revolutionary brigades, the, lar- the largest coalition of brigades in the East. Uh, and uh, Abdul Qadir, Sigisley's deputy, has an office in that building. So there's a regular per- presence. And um, it's probably the best, if not only, grassroots outreach operation going. I should have mentioned it, actually, in the question about soft power. Um, so it shouldn't be written off. Uh, that's my point about work. Okay. Very quickly about the work. I think it's, uh, it's, there are some sensitivity by some of the uh, groups, uh, like the Musrata, you mentioned the Musrata. They are the two big uh, monsters are the Musrata and the Zintan. When I mentioned the table, I mean, I'm bringing the others, but mainly to bring these two to the table so you can deal with them, because ultimately the future of Libya uh, will lay in the, in the hands of these two if they, don't, uh, if, they, if they become troublemakers. But I think some of them, they looked at Segesli and they looked at some of the people in, the, in that, and they looked at the personality and the personnel, and they said, well, these are Muslim brotherhoods. These are, have some affiliation, and they want to control us, and we don't want to deal with them. So I don't think they looked at it as an institution. That they, so they looked at it from uh, personal and from sectarian or, or ideological uh, you know, prism and decide that will not work for us. We are not going to uh, cooperate. And I think that's where the problem is. Uh, personal change maybe help. I don't know if it will or not. I'd actually agree with I mean, Sigisley had this reputation of throwing his weight around almost as if he was a minister equivalent yeah. um, for a while. Right. Um, so that was a, so there, there, were pers- there were definitely personality issues. Hey. As far as the uh, weapons, oh, yeah. you're right about the weapons. The weapons, they did go inside uh, into these uh, camps, and uh, I was talking to a few people yesterday, and they said 
some of the heavy, we heavy weapons were, were taken out, uh, but they end up in the market being sold. <laughs> so the government maybe in <laughs> get a good job to get buy them and put them in a better, sec more secure place this time. Uh, but I think is is the question will be how can the government devalue weapons? So you have to think that uh, to find a way that the, whoever has the weapons will not, they will become useless. And I think if you get to that point, people there start selling them or getting rid of them. And I think uh, that will be, as long as they have value, that they can use them to impose uh, your will or gain uh, or negotiate or, or, or somehow, um, you know, uh, uh, blackmail with them, I think they have values. But if there is a process that can devalue these weapons, I think the people will be, will be giving them for free <laughs> after a while. Can I add something on the weapons as well, just briefly? Um, my, under my understand, I haven't been to Benghazi in the last week, for example, but my understanding of what has happened with regards to the uh, taking control over um, to General Sarajah Thuar on the 17th of February and the other sort of brigades, um, there, is, there is now a direct line of authority through the National Army. So there, are command, there is a command structure. So a National Army general has to give them orders to move. There has been no attempt to requisition or look at the weapons. And with, with the Ansar Sharia and the groups that abandoned their positions, the, from what I understand from Benghazi notables, I, I don't have you know, any sort of smoking gun or big sort of in, intelligence breakthrough um, here, but my understanding is they vacated their um, bases and their open position. They used to be openly operating in a city, and they've simply scattered and gone underground. The same in Derna as well, where certain militias were routed or voluntarily withdrew. So, I mean, your question was, has this helped, I think, or something like that? Your question was, has this actually helped the government gain uh, control of the situation? Yeah, I, I think there's the, the, that is a concern I have heard echoed from Derna and from Benghazi. That they now, whereas you used to have very openly operating groups that you could, with whom you could have a conversation, you now have push them uh, underground. You yeah. push them underground, right? Okay, I'll take one more round. If there are more questions, yes, we have uh, the gentleman there, yeah, David Mack from the Middle East Institute. Um, my question to any of the three who can answer it. Who now provides security at El Jalal Hospital in uh, Benghazi? Okay, there is another one there, gentleman there. Is that right? <clears throat> um, Matthew Cook from University of Maryland. Uh, my question is: Is what are the chances that when the country becomes a little bit more stabilized, either the United States or the UN will deploy troops to help train the uh, either the militias or the national army? And uh, will this become like? Whereas Iraq, where we had a standing army that we could help train in a short amount of time, or will we have to start over like in Afghanistan, where we had to start from the very scratch and build them up? Okay. This, okay, we have one more here, and that would be the last question. Will Thomas, uh, House of Representatives Armed Services Committee. Um, my question kind of piggybacks on that last one. Um, Basically, uh, Peter, you had mentioned uh, talking about a systemic uh, endemic problem and that the policy needs to move towards a grassroots approach and something that addresses the social issues and everything else. So like gen that gentleman was saying, and this is for any of you, um, 
what can a policy of the United States take on to help with some of those institutions, that those grassroots things, um, and build into that to, to help this problem? Okay, let's go back to our original order. Fred, do you start? Don't know about the hospital. I, I know Ansar Sharia vacated. I've heard the seven, one of these sanctioned militias has stepped in February 17, or perhaps the National Army, but, but I don't know, and I don't know if, if Peter knows for sure. Uh, the National Army, you know, training, I mean, this is an issue that's, that's dear to my heart. I, I served as a, as a military attache in, in Libya, uh, before the revolution in 2009, and then just, just before it in 2011. The, the U.S. is, is, you know, actively aware of the need, uh, to get this army back on its feet. Uh, in such a way that is respectful of, of civil military relations, and, and it sees an opportunity for for real partnership here. I, it's 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 treading very carefully, I think, because it doesn't want a large footprint in the country, and because the the receiving end, uh, the Libyans themselves, there isn't there isn't the the organization within the Ministry of Inter- uh, Defense to even start. Uh, asking for help. I mean, the basic staff functions of a, of a ministry of defense or a military in which you, you requisition arms, you plan training, you set your priorities, you set your doctrine, that wasn't there, partly as a result of the, of the revolution, but also partly because of the way Qaddafi ran his military. It was so personalized, and it was gutted, intentionally gutted. All of these staff functions were gutted. So from what I hear from, from colleagues in the, um, in the U.S. military is that it's, it's baby steps. I mean, we're really, we're really starting from scratch. Um, I think I think a priority is going to be training a new generation of of Libyan officers, specifically at the field and company grade level and the senior NCO corps. As I mentioned, there's this top heavy. There's enough colonels and generals to go around, but the real the real weight of an army uh, is is missing, and and that's where we really need to to focus our efforts. And and I understand there's a lot of uh, programs underway through IMET to, to get Libyan officers, send them abroad for school. There's programs by some of our partner nations, uh, the Turks, the Jordanians, the Emiratis, to train uh, Libyan police uh, outside the country. Some of them have, these have not gone that well. We can, we can talk about that um, uh, uh, in, the bit, in a little bit. But just to echo, echo Peter's point, what we find from the Libyan military is a very ad hoc shopping list that they want these shiny pieces of equipment that will help them you know, big, be the biggest cat around town. When they confront these militias, they need to have bigger toys than the militia. So they're asking for, uh, you know, helicopters, UAV, you know, uh, Humvees. And, and, of course, this is the wrong way. You need, like he said, you need to address the institutional and organizational problems before you give them the, um, uh, the, the shiny toys, the, uh, the equipment. So we're, we're taking baby steps. But I think an overarching priority is, is minimal presence in the country. So... Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. You're talking about building a new um, institution from scratch in, in the case of both the army and also in the, um, the interior ministry as well. Um, Libya, the police force, was certainly not equipped to go after armed groups. It was actually a fairly bureaucratic and administrative um, function. It was traffic control, opening murder investigations, that kind of thing. The interior security, they were the guys who kept order on things and they have had to be dissolved completely. In fact, some of them have defected and now are doing their same job, but for the rebels. So, um, I'll give you an example of just how base, how uh, um, on the civilian side, how low, um, 
a level you have to start from. The, the head of police, Mohammed Sheikh, um, when I met him, was unable to... When, when he said we, we don't have equipment, he was unable to say what equipment he needed. He was also unable to say who he had to ask in the government in the, uh, to, to actually start um, requisitioning such equipment. Um, the, the horizontal connections between ministries don't exist. That's the point. You, you can't go to the Ministry of uh, Planning or Economy and, and there, there's going to be a guy there in, in charge of budgeting for that kind of stuff, using that kind of budgetary, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, uh, delegation doesn't exist. Um, and that's one, of the, that's one of the fundamental points. On training, um, you talk, I, I mentioned earlier on the National Army, and Fred as well, the National Army is top-heavy and recruits went into... Uh, again, quasi-legal militias run by Gaddafi's cohorts and sons. That has to be changed. The um, police training programs in Jordan um, ended, interestingly, when the training center was set on fire. Um, so you have, and the program was wrapped up by the Libyan government in, in embarrassment. Um, it, and those, the people there weren't sort of, there were kind of, trigger-happy, uh, untrained civilians there. But they were also, it was, a mixed, it was a mixed training program as well. The, the uh, level of discipline and um, the development of a core identity, the esprit de corps, um, has got to be created and developed, and that has to be overseen. Um, how, I mean, you mentioned training, actually like sort of physical training with the US. I mean, there's a sensitivity to that, but there are certainly, you know, you can find bilateral partners, you can oversee these kind of programs. I mean, I don't think a solution would involve, you know, the US going to Libya and training people on the ground. That would be just too politically uh, sensitive. But there are certainly, you know, Jordan was an option. There are other Tunisia. There are other plenty of different countries that could offer their services um, in that regard. Um, what was the, sorry, there was... Uh, oh, yeah, so one more point. is There's actually, ironically, given everything we've discussed, there is a sensitivity within the interna international community of making the army too strong. I know that sounds weird, given what, everything we've been talking about, but um, we're talking about a country where there has been no Ministry of Defence and no civilian oversight of a military apparatus. And Yusuf Mangosh, the Chief of Staff, is doing an excellent job um, at the moment in terms of asserting his authority given the limitations of the army but at the same time there's no, there's no effective civilian counterweights to that and the civilian counterweights to his authority have been unchecked so there's actually a, I, I just throw that in as an afterthought but it is something that people are very very concerned about very quickly the issue of ministries that's one of the biggest problems you have ministers who have no experience in the, in the, in the affairs of what they are assigned to ministry of, minister of, uh, of interior doesn't have any experience running a ministry. Mostly, he's just a very junior lawyer, uh, prosecutor, uh, and the same thing with the with the minister of, of defense. It just happened that because he's from Zentan, so he became a defense minister. So, and then you have the ministry itself. The ministry itself is filled with with mid level bureaucrats who are really don't like to get anything done at any level. So they block anything comes from the top, anything comes from the bottom up. So you have, and we had a long conversation when, uh, with the late uh, you know, Ambassador Stevens, and he was complaining that we are offering all these things, but the Libyans are not taking, and they don't know how to incorporate the help that, uh, that they ask for and we are offering. Uh, and uh, so uh, the question was, like, 
what can be done. More or less, you have to develop uh, parallel channels. I think task forces that deal with specific things that go around, so you know, bypass the the bureaucracy. I think that's, in my opinion, that's the best way to go right now with Libya. Until you you clean up these ministries and they become a little bit functional. Okay. Well, thank you very much. We have come to the end of our time. Uh, thank you all for coming, and please help me thanking the speakers.